suburban eastern Australia, an environment that has, over time, evolved some extraordinarily unique groups of Homo sapiens. But today, we observe a small tribe akin to a group of meerkats that gather together atop a small mound to watch, question, and discuss the current events of their city, their country, and their world at large. Let's listen keenly and observe this group fondly known as the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Hello and welcome, dear listener. We're back for 2024, the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove podcast. I'm Trevor, aka the Iron Fist, with me as always from regional Queensland, Scott the Velvet Glove. Scott, how are you? G'day, Trevor. G'day, listeners. How are you all? I hope everyone's well. Yeah, hopefully everyone's well. If you're in the chat room, say hello and we'll try and incorporate your messages. Joe's not here. I think Joe is caught up in something else um, in his trip in the UK, So, but he may he's, appear. He's actually having a good time over there, I would have thought. Yeah. So uh, so anyway, um, Watley's in the chat room and says hello. So that's good. Well, what are we going to talk about? You just over Christmas, Christmas dinners, gatherings of your family. Did you talk about news and politics and sex and religion with your crazy uncle, with your boomer parents, with your Gen Z disenchanted youngsters? Well, we're going to talk about news and politics and sex and religion here. Get you up to speed on what's been happening, what's going to happen. Maybe in this initial part of this episode, we'll just sort of look at. Where exactly are we with the world and what's likely to happen in the year ahead and the years ahead, sort of generally speaking, without being too specific? Scott and I were just chewing the fat over a few things prior to pressing the live button, so we'll continue that discussion. Um, so, yeah, uh, I guess I had some uh, friends from America just stay last night and talking to Kate and she was saying, you know, how do you explain right-wing politics and its popularity amongst a significant section of the population? And um, and I was thinking about it and it's a good way to sort of just reflect on where we've got to is this point in the experiment of human history. And, Scott, here's my view, as I, as I said it in a nutshell, which was we've essentially over the last 50 years – um, seen the demise of the middle class and the worsening of conditions for, you know, the lower classes, but certainly a distant um, a demise of the of the conditions for working average working people, and and really the rise of 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 some of these right wing characters is a reaction to that where people are not happy with their current circumstance and they're looking for someone or something to blame. And for a number of people, they're not quite yet ready to blame um, unrestrained capitalism and the neoliberalism experiment that's been running since Thatcher and Reagan. And then the only alternative to that is to be a bit xenophobic and to blame brown people and other people and immigrants and um, to hark back to the good old days of the 60s when there was 
a Judeo-Christian morality and if we could only return to those sorts of things. And, and that sort of appeal to um, conservative moral values and a blaming of immigrants, a blaming of China for taking all of the business and a sort of a lashing out at other people rather than looking at maybe the system that we've been working under hasn't been doing what it was all cracked up to do. So, and I think, I think we'll start over the years to see people start to accept that the capitalism, unrestrained capitalism experiment has some major problems. And in Australia, I reckon people will see that because I'll just look at housing and I'll just go, this situation is a mess. Um, we needed some regulation here to fix this and it's not happening. And, I, yeah, I, even here with the, the units where I stay with one guy who's quite conservative, sort of recognising he's done enough reading to know that capitalism requires growth and without growth capitalism fails it's just an essential part and you just run out of opportunities for growth um you run out of tricks which we'll talk about later so anyway scott you can see that happening with india which is Mm. um the next country that's going to move up Mm. and as their middle class is starting to grow and that sort of stuff the birth rate is starting to decline Mm. You know, it's only a matter of time before Africa joins that declining birth rate and then we're going to be stuffed. We're not going to have to import our population from anywhere. Mm. So we, you know, technically should have been in recession here in Australia, but immigration, exactly. population mm. growth um, basically bumped up the numbers so that we weren't. So, mm-hmm. uh, so there's sort of a broad brush thing of where I think we're heading over the next years. Just... How long it takes for that to happen, who knows? could be decades for that realisation or it might come quicker depending on what disasters beset us along the way. So uh, Alison's in the chat room. Good on you, Alison. Um, Alison, if you ever want to come on and do a rundown of where we are with uh, secularism and um, religious instruction and all the rest of it, feel free to to come on and give us a rundown of where we're at to and that conference you spoke at. So. Um, so, yeah, so we've got Trump coming up, Scott, uh, with an election in the US and here's my tip. I think if he lives <laughs> and it's against Biden, if he continues to live, I reckon if it's a Trump versus Biden election, I think Trump's going to win. What do you reckon? Nothing would surprise me. I mean, um, you, you can only see it. I mean, it's... Um, I find it incredible that the never Trumpers and all that sort of stuff and the Republicans haven't made a bigger haven't made a bigger song and dance over these uh, ninety one criminal indictments he's facing, and um, as a result, it looks like the bastard is going to be sailing into office. It's it's one of those things. I I, I honestly believe the problem is in the democrats that they have backed the wrong horse they've Mm. backed a very old stallion yep and that old stallion is too old to put down now so i just don't think people will be motivated 
to get out and vote. No, and to campaign. And they don't have they don't have a compulsory ballot and all that sort of stuff. Mm. So you're no longer you're not arguing to the centre. You're arguing to the extremes on both parties. You, you put enough you put enough energy into the into the left of the Democrats and the middle of the road. So well, fuck it, I'm not going to vote. Mm-hmm. And then you you do that on the right and all that sort of stuff, and they think to themselves, "Well, I'm going to hold my nose and vote for Trump because it's going to be better than having Biden back in," mm. which I don't understand. But anyway, it is what it is. It's just um, well, people are just hurting. They're saying the system's not yeah, helping. Yeah, I and, know. Um, yeah, but it's- why the hell? Okay, if you're hurting and that sort of stuff, why the hell would you turn around and vote for a billionaire that first? Item of government was to reduce taxes on the on his on his mates because he's he's clearly not part of the establishment, <laughs> and they blame the establishment for where we are and or where they are in America at least, and they see him as anti-establishment, and um, and as somebody who'll shake things up and um, you know they'll tribalism they'll hear what they want to hear so. Yeah, that you know, the Republicans are motivated, and I think the Democrats will be very unmotivated by Biden. And mm. I think I think he's going to the polls show him slightly ahead. And um, anyway, I think that's I, I think all of his court cases he'll be able to hold off long enough till after the election. And yeah, but he, see that case he's facing in Georgia, that's the one that's actually got real criminal time with him. He could actually end up doing time for that. Mm. Now, he cannot pardon himself as the United States president against a state conviction. Mm. So I suppose it depends on who his running mate is as to who's actually going to be the president. Yeah. Well, this will all be dealt with after the election, though, the really hard Mm. stuff. So I think he'll get in and then he'll, he'll... He'll just claim that he can do it and wait for somebody to come and actually arrest him and drag him off. Um, real crisis of democracy, perhaps, looming there. Well, I suppose so. you're going to have the secret services that are there to protect him and all that sort of stuff. They could be ending up facing off against George's, George's um, police. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's just, no, it's a hell of a mess. Yeah, it is. Here in Queensland, we're going to have a state election, I think, at the end of the year as well. Mm-hmm. And so Palaszczuk's gone. Stephen Miles is in. That was a good move by Labor. Chris Afelli is the Liberal leader, LNP leader. He he comes across as harmless enough, but I think as people get a better look at his <laughs> colleagues and get reminded of who they are. Yeah, exactly. That's the whole point about the LNP. They have been... Mm. Very heavily overtaken by the Christian right, mm. and I don't want anyone to forget that mm. they are under the control of the Christian nutters. Mm. So do not believe that they are all innocent and sweet and everything else because they're not. Mm. They're the same bastards that did what they did while they were in office, and they're going to do exactly the same thing again next time. So someone like Grace Grace in a city electorate, she's really facing a I think from the Greens, hey, she's really facing an uphill battle. Mm. You know, it's it's one of those things, especially mm. if um, especially if she was still education minister, if she was still pushing Christian prayers and all that sort of stuff, then the Greens would have had a field day with her. You'd hope so. Now that, she, now that she's no longer um, education minister and all that sort of thing, she can always just say, oh, "It's not me." It's um, 
hang on, isn't she? She still is education minister. No, she was actually. Oh no, that's right. There was a new. She one. was given a new job. I can't remember. That's what right. It was. But I think yeah. the assistant education like there's an assistant to the education minister who is really um, anti uh, religious instruction. Right. So okay. I hope there that the assistant to the minister is going to push things. Yeah. Mm. So um, so we'll see how that develops. Um, and they're just fed I, I think that Stephen Miles has got a pretty good chance of winning. But, yeah, I think um, he has. It, it really wouldn't surprise me if he ended up with a minority Labor government That'd propped be, up by the Greens. That's my early tip for the year as well. Mm. So um, Labor in coalition with the Greens in the state and a Trump victory. There we go. <laughs> Let's hope you're wrong on that. Mm. Uh, it really wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. So... Um, Yes. So just uh, still getting back to sort of crystal ball gazing as to what's going to happen. So continued demise of the USA will be accompanied by the rise of China. So you may read things, dear listener, about the Chinese economy being stuffed and and uh, you know certain banks in China going broke or property problems in China. China's had a growth rate of 5% GDP. For the largest economy in the world, any other country would kill. The second largest economy in the world. Well, depending how you measure it, Scott. <laughs> Purchasing power parity, it is the largest. So, mm. you know, so if you hear rumours of um, people saying, oh, the Chinese economy is stuffed, 5% growth, um, most countries would kill for that, and some of them do. Mm. Yeah. Um, we've got bricks. So that was um, – that's this collection of countries that are, um, are trying to break away from US control of economic matters and particularly the dollar. So, um, so they, the BRICS, have been joined by – so BRICS is Brazil, Russia, Iran, China – and South Africa. Brazil, Russia, India, China, India, and South sorry. Africa. India, mm. China, yes. And they've been joined by, um, and this took effect on the 1st of January, uh, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, the United Arab Emirates, Iran and Ethiopia have joined. Interesting how they've described a few of the smaller players like South Africa and Ethiopia. But um, anyway, that block of countries the BRICS countries, now represents 37% of global GDP and 40% of global oil production and a third of global gas production. So this is going to be the challenge to the US petrodollar system, which I've mentioned on many occasions, but just as a refresher for those new to the podcast, is the deal done between the USA and Saudi Arabia was, uh, okay, you can sell your oil, but the money that you earn and the transactions you do it in must be in US dollars and then you must basically, what are you going to do with those US dollars? You're going to invest them in US Treasury bonds. And so anytime anyone in the world has been buying oil, even though the transaction didn't involve America, it did involve American dollars, creating a demand for US dollars that has propped up the US dollar despite the fact that the US um, spends, 
well, prints money like a drunken sailor and a normal country's currency would have been devalued and have caused economic problems. But because of this unique um, position that the US has had as the world's default currency, propped up by this petrodollar arrangement, uh, it's really um, enabled the USA to uh, continue doing all the things it wants to do. And that's going to come to a halt over time quicker than people think, I reckon. There's my prediction, another prediction. Whether it's just in the next 12 months or whether it takes longer, we'll see. But there are countries itching to break away from having to hold US dollars. One reason is if you hold US dollars in treasury bonds and the US takes a disliking to you, they just confiscate this money um, if it's in a bank account. So Venezuela, they just confiscated the US dollars. Uh, Russia, they just confiscated their money. And so a lot of countries have been um, reducing the amount of US dollars they hold as foreign exchange currency, trying to decouple from that arrangement. And that's going to be a big problem for the US. So, um, And there's a lot of oil producers in the BRICS arrangement. And incredibly, I reckon, Scott, in that whole thing is imagine getting together a group that included Saudi, America, Saudi Arabia and Iran. Yeah, it's quite a hell of a lot that's that they cool. did. That it's a very, um, it's an achievement. a very good diplomat, diplomatic coup that they managed to pull that off. Yeah, getting those two countries to agree and join a group is amazing. Mm. So, mm. It, out of interest, dear listener, who's the largest um, oil producer in the world? Which country? And you might think Saudi Arabia, but in fact, United States produces twenty percent of the world's oil. Saudi Arabia, 12%, Russia, 11 uh, Canada, 6 China, 5 uh, Iraq, 5 United Arab Emirates, 4 That's not bad by China, hey, 5%. Mm. Didn't realise that they did so much. So, so anyway, oil and the petrodollar, watch that space over the year and the coming years. Um, of course, Western powerful oligarch companies involved in weapons manufacturing, uh, media, fossil fuels and other entrenched industries will not concede power. As I mentioned before, capitalism demands growth. There's a guy, uh, Thomas Piketty, wrote, I think the book's called Capital in the 21st Century. Anyway, explains why the whole system relies on growth. And there's been various tricks over the last 70 years to ensure growth. There's been world wars. We had double income, so essentially where we had just traditionally the man going to work, the wife, house, homemaker and mother, um, once women entered the workforce, that was um, uh, a factor that allowed expansion of GDP and growth for capitalism. Um through the IMF and the World Bank, various Western companies have been able to um, colonise South American countries and other smaller countries without actually bombing them. So that enabled growth for those Western companies. Uh, we had low interest rates, uh, inflating asset prices, 
that was another trick. And we've recently had money printing and bailouts. And these are all things that have enabled growth to continue, at least on the books, and for Western countries. And they've just run out of options. There's not many left. They can't think of any. Um, you can't really repeat many of those. The only one you can repeat, unfortunately, is war. Running a war is something that can be repeated. USA is yeah, itching I to start to... one, itching to start one. Scott, you want to go to Taiwan before they start a war? No, mm. I want to go to Taiwan, but well, it's still the Republic of China before it becomes a new province of the People's Republic of China. Mm. So I'd like to see what the Republic of China is actually supposed to be like rather than the People's Republic of China. Mm. I have been to the PRC. I went over there to visit my brother many, many years ago. Mm. Yeah, he lives in Beijing. It was very good. Mm. And, um, in the chat room, John says, what will the US do when the uh, Arabs sell the bonds? Well, uh, when the demand stops for the US dollar, it will be devalued and um, what happens to all countries when they face chronic devaluation of their currency? Um, it's not good. So, uh, so we'll see what happens. It's one of those things, if, if America was still a creditor country rather than a debtor country, they wouldn't have a problem mm. because, you know, if the dollar falls in value and all that sort of stuff, they still get paid back in greenback. Mm. But because they owe a shitload of money to the Chinese and everyone else, mm. then they're going, their repayments are going to rise, so it's going to become very expensive for them. Mm. And I think that um, whichever party is in power and all that sort of stuff, they're going to have to look at their... You're going to have to look at their taxation system to actually return something back to the people and all that sort of stuff because they cannot just continually run deficit budgets. Mm. You have to pay that. You have to pay those loans back at some stage. Mm. And you know the United States has never run a surplus in its entire history. It's um, it came very close mm. under Clinton. You there mean a, a trade surplus or a or a, no, or a government a, a government government surplus, surplus government right? Surplus. Okay, they've never mm. run one. They've always, they've right. always just had a deficit budget. Mm. It's always just an argument about whose yeah. whose deficit is going to be bigger. It's going to be the Democrats or the Republicans, mm. and it's just one of those things. They've never had to pay anything back, mm. and if their dollar actually does decline in value, they're going to hurt mm. because all that foreign currency has got to be paid back in. US dollars, which is going to cost them a hell of a lot more. Well, I'm not so worried about them running government deficits. It's no, more no, just not. it's more just trade is their problem, is that is that um, buying stuff will get incredibly expensive when your yeah, dollar it devalues. Will. It, it, it will get so incredibly expensive for them, they, but they'll have difficulty importing things. Yeah, but because mm. they were once a manufacturing superpower and all that sort of stuff. Mm. They just got to dust off their factories and that type of thing, and just start producing it for themselves again. Yeah, there's a lot of rust. I know, there's, to dust I know off. there's a lot of rust that you've got to dust <laughs> off and all that sort of stuff, but it yeah. could be done. Yeah, you know, especially that um, with the Chips Act and everything else that's now starting, mm. they are starting to reinvigorate the American uh, manufacturing economy. It's going to take a hell of a lot more than just you know two blokes sitting here talking about it. But it could be done. It would be very expensive, it could but it be, could be done. It couldn't be done without massive amounts of government spending, and they're not going to I do agree that. wholeheartedly. So, yeah. so they're not going to do that. So, Well, the, 
the Democrats have started that, though. You know, you got the you got the uh, IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, and you got the Chips Act, mm. which are all investing back in American manufacturing. Mm. It started. Yeah. Well, we'll see. They just yeah, don't exactly. have the technical capacity to, to challenge on that issue now. No, not now and, they don't and, because they have allowed. And and the cost of their labour is too expensive. For, yeah, agreed. To be competitive with the world. Well, that's why mm. they're going to have to, if, they, if their dollar actually declines in value, mm. then they're going to have to spend more, mm. but they're going to be buying stuff that's produced locally than what they're going to be importing. True. Because it ended up being cheaper to produce it back at home than it will be to import it. True. Massive devaluation might kickstart the it American could well, manufacturing. Yes. It could kickstart them again. Mm. It could. The, yes. I'm not saying it will, but it could. Yeah. Every cloud has a silver lining. Mm. Well, it does for the American manufacturing unions and all that sort of stuff. They'd see this yeah. as a great deal for them. But, yes. but it's yeah. going to take some money and it's going to take some mm. concerted political effort to get it done. Mm. Watley says, uh, Scott, America never can never be what it was again. So, yeah. <sighs> yeah, but Watley, you are very much down on the Americans mm. and... Will they balance, ever be? What, will they? Will they ever be back here again? Will they be ever back to where they were? No, they won't. I think that ship has sailed. You know, they won't be ever getting back to where they were. But they could actually end up. They could end up being very comfortably in number two position behind China. Usually, when empires yeah. fall, they sort of. Yeah, they usually collapse. They they and, usually collapse into a heap and that and, sort of and stuff, the, and then and no, the no, barbarians no. come in and it's. Quite a mess for a long time, isn't it? You know, it normally happens yeah. when an empire falls. Could be. Yeah. You know, it, it could. It I could mean, go how's the down. Spanish Empire, the Portuguese Empire, the Belgium Empire, uh, the German Empire, and the British empires? How did they go after their decline? You know, it was, it's well, Britain was yeah. Britain was a. Yeah. It happened. It, it did decline and it went through a very long period of a very slow descent down. They're completely stuffed now. Yeah, they are because they have, they have they've kicked a massive own goal by leaving EU. Yeah. You know, it was a completely stupid thing for them to do. Mm. Anyway, they did. And God alone knows how long it's going to be before they actually realise what they've done. And whether or not they actually start secret talks with Belgium about possibly coming back in, you know, it's one of those things. I, mm. I don't see how the hell they can do it, but they might be actually faced with mm. no choice mm. because it is. Mm. it was a completely stupid thing that was done. Mm. It was completely insane. Mm. Right. Um, what else have I got here? Um, oh, the other thing that happened during the year, of course, was Nord Stream was blown up by the Americans. Mm. It's yeah. still not proven that it was the Americans, but it is highly it is highly likely it was the Americans that did it. As a consequence, the German economy is now stuffed. Yeah, because it relied because on cheap power to make stuff. It relied on cheap gas from Russia, mm. which was a mistake. And also, by the same token, the other thing that they're doing, which is bloody stupid too, is that they uh, they've gone ahead with their turning off their nuclear power, mm. which is absolutely insane. Because 
you know, they're not Soviet reactors. They were built by Germany and all that sort of stuff. There has not been one single accident in Germany. Mm -hmm. Now, at the same time as Germany was leading the world in renewable energy and all that type of thing, they also had a substantial amount of their electricity was generated by the nuclear industry. Mm -hmm. So it was very stupid of them to actually say that we're going to turn them off. Mm. Now, if they had not turned them off and all that type of thing, then they could have very slowly but surely they could have converted their housing from heating by gas to heating by electricity and they could have had a flow of electricity from their nuclear power while they were still building wind windmills and all that sort of thing to transform to renewable energy. But they didn't. They went with cheap Russian gas. Mm. Well, which was turned out to be a bloody mistake. Yeah, they didn't think the Americans would blow it up. So, yeah. I know, but they also probably didn't think that Ukraine was going to get invaded either. Mm. So. It's one of those things that I just think to myself mm. that, you know, if you want the uh, if you want my argument on that, I think that Angela Merkel was responsible for that. Mm. You know, John, by- John in the chat room says, I think the Germans have delayed the closure of nuclear power. He's, he thinks they might have delayed the closure of it. Well, if they have, that would be very good. Mm. But I didn't hear that. I had heard that they were still going ahead with their closing down of the nuclear power. Dear listener, on this podcast over the years, I've made it very clear that nuclear power in Australia is a completely nonsensical idea. Agreed. But um, in Europe, but where I they've have already no been idea. doing it. I have no idea about in Europe in particular um, because I just don't know whether they have the sun and the wind and I haven't seen the studies on those countries to see whether they can survive without it. I just know that we can. So uh, all my comments about nuclear power have been basically about Australia and our experience here where we clearly don't need it. It's too expensive. It's a terrible option. But anyway, it might be the best thing for Germans. I don't know. It's one of those things. It's a it's a good transitional energy and all that sort of stuff that they could just continue to use mm. ad infinitum, but they've decided to walk away from it. Mm. So anyway, but I hadn't heard that they hadn't heard that they were delaying the closure of them, John. Mm. I think the Americans blowing up Nord Stream have learned a lesson, and they think actually that was a pretty good trick. Um, wouldn't surprise me. Here's another tip for 2024. In the years ahead, the Americans to blow up some other key infrastructure. Of Scott, either an enemy or of an ally, because it works both ways. <laughs> so, in the case of Nord Stream, that was both. I mean, that was half owned by the Germans and the Russians, wasn't it? Like 50 50 ownership or something like that. So, I thought it was owned by the Russians, wasn't uh, it? I thought, I thought they were, I thought they were shared ownership of that, of that pipeline. So, mm. um, so yeah, from the Americans' point of view, you know, if you're wanting to cause a problem for China, you know, blowing up a dam or something um, or causing um, some infrastructure damage might be something they would consider. So look for them to lash out and blow up some infrastructure somewhere. Why not? It worked with Well, I hope you're wrong. So uh, yeah, here's another tip, Scott. Um, if Trump does win, maybe he AUKUS will cancel will AUKUS mm. and the submarine deal will finally be put down hmm. because he might say quite rightly from an American point of view, we don't have enough subs as it is and with his anti-China rhetoric, 
he might say, I want us to keep the subs. I don't want Australia to have them. We don't have enough. I'm cancelling the deal and I'm cancelling effectively AUKUS. That would be great. I'm all for a Trump victory if that's a potential um, result. It is a potential result. He is the sort of character who might do that. I've got no doubt that August has got a um, time limit on it, and if, mm-hmm. if Trump wins, then that time will be accelerated. Mm. You know, it's one of those things. I think that we're going to have to go cap in hand to the Japanese and just say, "Look, you know, those those, those twelve mil- subs you're going to build for us. Yeah, we want you to build them again, please. Yeah, those mil- Yeah, those those one billion dollar subs. Yeah, exactly. As opposed to we, the fifty billion dollar subs. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Mm. Yeah. Um, of course. The other thing that will happen, uh, climate change will continue, Scott. And there's a lot of cans that can be kicked down the road, but I think eventually climate change is the one that's going to perhaps create a bit of a catalyst for action on things. When um, Well, you've only got to see the weather and that sort of stuff that we're experiencing up here in Queensland. Mm. You know, Amazing rain. Up at oh, it's incredible. Cairns and yeah. Port Douglas, uh, two metres in two days and things like that. Crazy mm. amounts of rain. So. I think um, I think for every degree of temperature increase, the atmosphere can hold seven percent more moisture, and so we've already increased uh, one and a half percent, and so there's ten percent more moisture in the air than there was say seventy years ago or whatever, mm. and that moisture uh, has to fall at some stage. Leads to these massive downpours and also big snow events in um, cold countries. So, uh, um, and Scott, we're just going to have more issues with, imagine these poor people in like um, Springbrook and whatever had housing and their roofs blown off, trying to get a builder to come in and do insurance work and and Mm -hmm. fix up a house. It's going to be really hard to get um, Mm -hmm. stuff done. Um, So... Uh, so, yeah, climate change is one of the things that will have a continuing effect. And, um, Scott, I reckon all these things, cans get kicked down the road. Nobody's prepared to do anything. It's all too hard and they just want to get through to the next election without having done anything and without having offended people. And it it's going to take maybe 50 or 100 years or some disaster might happen where we have quite a systemic collapse. I reckon at that point, Scott, we need to be ready with a new constitution. And we, what do you want to do with it? And, and people need to have it written out and argued and done and dusted and just put on uh, in the top shelf. Um, no, on a wall, Scott, behind a glass, um, a sheet of glass with a sign on it in a case of emergency, break glass. And then we pull out a new constitution. I'd like to, Scott, this year, as part of our podcast, is imagine, uh, you know, some sort of apocalyptic event and and we are charged with writing a constitution that would then uh, they'd break glass and say, well, here's one we can use. People have had time to think about this in the cold light of day and argue about it and and we'll use this as a as a better constitution. Here are some ideas, Scott, for what would be a better constitution. So proportional voting, Scott. 
So rather than, I'm not talking preferential voting, I'm talking proportional. So this sort of thing where we're just broken down into districts and we and we have a, a member for our electorate just doesn't make sense to me. It should be all the voters, which what? Is it 15 million or something like that, Australian voters? I mean, the population's 27 or 28, but the voting population's 15 or something like that. Just um, voting for, um, uh, as a collective, for our federal parliament. And if 15% of us vote green, then 15% of the federal politicians are Greens politicians, for example. Um, What do you think of that? Proportional voting. Yeah, that doesn't make me offended or anything like that. I suppose mm. the only real problem with that is you'd end up killing off the independents because they would have to get a hell of a lot more votes to actually win a mm. seat. Mm. It's one of those things I think that would kill them off. I don't know. Maybe you'd get No, I don't you'd, think you'd, you'd get, get some national figures who could come Yeah, in. you could end up with Zali Stegel and that sort of stuff winning. Yeah. Yeah. But um, I don't think you're going to end up with the, don't think you're end up with the number of teals and that sort of stuff. They'd have to run under a banner of the teals. Mm. Yep. And then they'd have to get involved in that sort of stuff. They'd have to work together and all that type of thing. They'd have to run a party mm. and that sort of stuff so they'd get up. Mm. But it would be a breakdown of this two-party system, which Oh, it is would, absolutely. Us. It is, yeah. It's failed. It has failed. So I've got no problem with that. So, yeah, break glass, new constitution, proportional voting. Um Intergenerational stuff, Scott. Like, yeah. Now, what do you mean by the intergenerational rights of Norway? Well, what I'm saying here is, for example, in Norway, they've when they they've retained ownership of their oil as mm. they sell it, and the the money from that goes into a wealth sovereign wealth fund, right? Yeah. And then the income from that is used for various projects, but the fund itself is not really touched. That's there for future generations, right? Mm. So essentially what we've got here in Australia is we're allowing private operators to mine and we're taking royalties, but we're not slotting that money away as sort yeah, of a so capital. Yeah, you want a sovereign wealth fund. Yeah, because mm. it's really a theft by the current generations from the from the future generations and future generations ago, you bastards, you had this, you know, coal and gas and oil and iron ore and you sold it, but that was belonging not just to your generation, that was a multi-generation asset. I, I think there should be some law to stop generations stealing from each other. Yeah, and I agree. And then it would be something if you if you're setting up a sovereign wealth fund and all that type of thing, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. So if you are extracting a capital item like that that you can only do once, then you just can't spend it on recurrent um, expenditure. It's got to be on something that's lasting. Anyway, uh, term limits, Scott. Like, I like the idea that um, people can't hang around for too long. Uh, as politicians, like two terms, three terms or something, but move on. Um, Post-political career employment. There is absolutely Absolutely. no way these bastards who are, you know, Minister of Defence, two weeks after leaving office 
or 12 months are suddenly taking up cushy jobs with Lockheed Martin and other groups. Mm. Just, you just can't allow it. Um, freedom of information, where we've got to be able to just find out what is being discussed. Um, there's way too much hidden secrecy. Um, media literacy to just – there's no way of stopping the amount of deceptive shit out there. The only defence is to teach people how to recognise it mm. when they see it and smell it. Uh, war powers. Scott came out recently over Christmas, release of some cabinet papers that comes out every every new year every about new year. essentially yeah. John Howard taking us to war in Iraq. No written submissions, no um, detailed assessment. It was just him and a handful of people sitting around having a bit of a chat and saying, yep, okay, well, we're in. It was a pathetically poor level of consideration for such a major thing. It, war powers should be the entire parliament, House of Reps and Senate, comes together and votes. If you can't convince all those people and get a majority, then you don't have a good argument for going to war. Mm. And that's got to change. Um, and things to do with climate change and inequality. The whole, you know, different things we we could do in terms of um, like none of this can possibly happen except in a crisis of some sort. Um, but like Naomi Klein says with the book Shock Doctrine, if you haven't read that book, dear listener, go out and read it, which basically talks about how countries that suffer from a shock, whether it's an economic shock or a um, maybe a, a tsunami or or some event like that, um, basically in the case of a tsunami, villages wiped out um, that had traditional sort of sea shacks on the foreshore and fishing villages and whatnot, they end up going to higher ground. Their, their residences have been completely wiped out and corrupt governments and land developers move in, bulldoze what was, you know, the remnants of their homes and whack up, um, you know, tourism developments before these people can gather together and, and readjust and, 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 and fight for their rights. And while they're still in shock, these other groups are sitting there waiting for this sort of event to happen and they move in swiftly and do their dirty deeds uh, while people are still in shock, and that's the whole sort of theory behind shock doctrine. So, um, yeah, that's that. Um, what else have I said here? Uh, Australia in particular, I think Murdoch's influence has to wane even further, Scott, as the boomers die out and just young people don't pay attention they're no longer, to they're not They're not paying attention to the news. Mm. Or newspapers, so mm. um, surely his influence has to wane. Um, I suppose it depends on how good his control is of the television, because the television and that sort of stuff that probably mm. still grabs the kids. They don't watch free. Don't, they don't watch free. To, 
Well, you would just sign no, yourself. You don't watch it. Well, either. I don't watch free to air. I just watch it on the uh, on the Foxtel and that sort of stuff. Yeah, you know, I just go and choose. I go and choose my news there. I go and choose the SBS news. Um, mm. So I just don't see young people consuming content from Murdoch much. No, they're not going to consume it in the volumes that our generation did. Mm. Our generation, you know, you probably still bought a newspaper and all that sort of stuff. You read it from cover to cover. Mm. I didn't buy a newspaper, but I watched, I listened to news radio and then uh, watched the ABC and everything like that for an hour every day. I watched it between seven and eight every day. Mm. These days I just shift everything over to SBS because mm. ABC's got really pathetic. Mm. I read the Courier Mail every day, cover to cover, for a good laugh. <laughs> That's where you get most of your content from. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, uh, I'd say, yes, the housing problem in Australia, it's going to be exacerbated by natural disaster repairs and the Greens will force Labor to tinker with rent freezes and sort of other stuff, but nothing substantial will be done. Um, here's a prediction, Scott. Less tattoos. In Australia, I saw this article. Are you in favour of? Ta- do you like tattoos, Scott? No, I don't like tattoos. <laughs> Just you know, to each their own, but not for me. Mm. So there's this article that said uh, at the turn of the millennium. Just ten percent of Australians over fourteen had a tattoo, and they were mostly men. Now, dear listener, twenty percent of Australians have a tattoo, and they're mostly women. No one actually believe that up here. Like there is mm. an incredible number of ladies that got tattoos on them. Mm. You know? And um, they're not just they're not just subtle ones. They're, they're getting the whole sleeve done. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the it's rise is driven by the young. About thirty percent of Aussies aged twenty two to thirty six have a tattoo. But uh, according to this article, the big issue right now: cost of living, inflation, adjusted wages are falling. Tattoos have to be paid after rent. So people, he's saying, are sort of struggling to afford a tattoo and there's sort of evidence of tattoo shops or tattoo parlours, Scott, um, struggling to find clientele in recent times. Um, Demand has dropped. And um, he says that over 50% of Australians get their first tattoo aged 18 to 25 and once you've got a tattoo, that gets you more tattoos. Most Aussies who have a tattoo have more than one. So if you make it to 25 without your first ink, you're far more likely to keep your skin as is forever. So maybe with the cost of living crisis, people are unable to afford them. If they can't afford them till they're over 25, then they may not get them at all. And, um, and he also says, you know, it could become uncool because at the moment – most of these young people, their parents don't have a tattoo. Um, but when your parents have a tattoo, suddenly it's not so cool. So uh, so the group coming through, uh, maybe it's spelling the end of the tattoo phase. So that's a change that, um, that we're likely to see. So, uh, Scott, sure. You have a question? Okay. Uh, do any of your kids have tattoos? I found out that one does. Really? Yes. Boy or girl? Uh, girl. Right. Yeah. Yes. The youngest one? Yes. Right. Tiny little, tiny little tattoo. But, yes, we mm. didn't know and um, until Christmas. 
And so essentially those statistics, because I have three surviving children, um, and what did it say? That um, about 30% of Aussies aged 22 to 36 say one third, and yes, one third of my children um, have tattoos. tattoos. And it was a girl was the one who who had. So those statistics bear out when it comes to my personal experience, Scott. But I find tattoos just, I've never seen, I just find them ugly. I find that as an, yeah, the it's... artwork to me is very aesthetically unpleasing to my eye and I find them just things, I saw this comment in, in this, I think it might have been in this article, that most tattoos look like something that your vaguely artistic friend doodled into the back of his math pad during his spare time. Like, mm. It's kind of what it looks like. It's one of those things. I uh, it's like Brian and I were talking rather ex- existentially over New Year's Eve and that sort of stuff. And he says, mm. "What would you do if I died?" I said, "Well, I'd go get a tattoo of your name put on my on my left side of my chest over my heart." Yes. He says, "Oh, you wouldn't, would you?" I said, "Well, I might." You know, so <laughs> it's just one of those things. I, I don't have a desire for a tattoo or anything like that. It would have to be. It would have to be an existential threat to the two of us that would actually motivate me to go out there and get ink. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Watley says. And I be- think I would stop at one, though. Yes. I would stop at one. Watley says, would be nice to not have to listen to the lame justifications given for their ink. Oh, ouch. <laughs> Watley. <laughs> I agree with you, though, Watley. That is, it is one of those things. I, You know, you, they sit there and they talk about it and that sort of stuff, and I think to myself, does my face look like I'm interested? Because I'm not, you know. It's just. Uh, yeah. Okay. Um, and Maddock Man has finally made it to the chat. Good on you, Maddock Man. So, um, yeah, my dad joke that I like to tell when I ever talk about tattoos is, you know, there's so many tattoos nowadays that when I go to the beach, I don't take a book with me. I just read the guy beside me. <laughs> boom, boom. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, I mentioned before de-dollarisation and um, there's an interesting podcast called The Geopolitical Report, often gets into this sort of stuff and, um, oh, quoting an economist there and he says that if you adjust for the price changes in the dollar share of official global reserves, uh, so this is what countries hold in their reserve currencies the um, it used to be seventy three percent U.S. dollars, and that's dropped to fifty five percent in twenty twenty one, and then forty seven percent in twenty twenty two. So from seventy three percent to forty seven percent. So he's saying there's already been a large drop in that. Um, yeah, right. Um, quickly, just on Donald Trump as well. So I'll just play a little clip here from Donald Trump speaking about Qatar and he's initially talking in 2017 about Qatar and then he's talking in 2018 about Qatar. See if you can spot the difference. At a very high level, we have a gentleman on my right who buys a lot of equipment from us, a lot of purchases in the United States. The nation of Qatar. Sorry, I think I had that just starting not at the beginning of the clip. So I'm just going to rewind it back to the beginning and try that again. Here we go. The nation of Qatar, unfortunately, 
has historically been a funder of terrorism at a very high level. We have a gentleman on my right who buys a lot of equipment from us, a lot of purchases in the United States. Those countries are stopping the funding of terrorism. That includes UAE, it includes Saudi Arabia, it includes Qatar. Thank you. Thank you. There we go. So in 2017, Qatar is a, fun- is, of is a funder of terrorism. 2018, yeah, stopping the funding of terrorism. Yeah, because they're purchasing weapons from the US. Well, and also um, in between those statements, uh, Qatar bought a $6.5 million apartment at Trump World Tower. Mm. I wonder if that had any connection to it. Of course it had everything to do with that because, you know, that. Uh, yes. He's a corrupt old bastard. Yeah. So um, let's see. Uh, I can't get sued for that, can I? Uh, calling Trump a corrupt bastard? No. You'll be fine. That's good. Yeah. Right. Um, last uh, podcast or the one before, I was talking about Yasha Monk and mm-hmm. identity synthesis. And listener Liam, who's been on the podcast and convinced you, Scott, to vote green. Or he to be convinced me to, to vote be... green in the next two elections. After that, I will be returning back to the Labor Party. Well, there you go. Yeah. So anyway, he referred me to an episode that was sort of critical of Yasha Monk, and uh, good criticism in some respects because he is one of these guys who sees woke stuff everywhere and particularly spends a lot of time in his book talking about um, experiences in US classrooms and universities and probably over eggs the problem of wokeness and identity in those environments. Um, and this particular podcast, which was on, if he called If Books Could Kill. So if you want to hear a criticism of Yasha Monk, go to the podcast If Books Could Kill and you'll see it there. But um, in my defence, Liam, my um, sort of review of Yasha Monk was really looking at um, what he had to say about Foucault and Derek Bell and Kimberly Crenshaw and that sort of development and in that podcast, they said that essentially the way that he uh, described that process was essentially correct. So the bits that I extracted from the book for you, dear listener, were the bits that at least in that criticism, they said, yeah, more or less he's got that right. Um, and I guess if Monk was overstating racial profiling examples, I was reading it with the voice in mind and I don't think that was a minor matter of racial profiling myself. So I think uh, there you go, Liam. That's my response to all of that. Um, everyone can have a look at If Books Could Kill and Yasha Monk. He is one of those guys who will appear in the same sort of places that Jordan Peterson would appear. So, you know, that is a problem. <laughs> You know, Dave Rubin will probably have him on, for example, that sort of thing. You've got to pick, you've got to, you've got to pick these things. Sometimes stop clocks are right. Yep. Um, Gaza, Scott, it's still going. It is incredible that the Jews, the most famous example of 
a persecuted group could commit such an atrocious persecution of another group. It's incredible. Yeah, I agree that their, their, their persecution of the Palestinians is wrong. I agree wholeheartedly with you there. However, given what Hamas has actually said about the Jews and that sort of thing, that they don't have a right to exist on their land and that sort of thing, that they should be wiped off the face of the earth from the river to the sea and that sort of stuff, it should be all Palestine, that means everything from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea should be Palestine. Where's Israel going to sit in that? Nowhere, apparently. Yeah, but the five-year-old girls, yeah, the four-year-old boys, and the two-month-old babies is terrible. Are it not the terrible. ones who've been saying that? So I know that. I know it's a terrible, so, terrible so, thing that's happening. So just just because it's, it's because they are being led by a group of people that are brutal thugs who are actually using them as human shields and everything else that they are trying to hide behind them so that the Israeli bombs are going to blow something up, so they're going to blow up the human shields that they put in front of them. Not even trying. The the Israelis are purposefully just killing massive amounts of innocent people. They're dropping bombs knowing they're killing innocent people. They just don't care. Mm. Well, that doesn't surprise me. It's It it honestly doesn't surprise me because... (laughs) If they would actually put the if they would actually put the um, hostages on buses and move them back out, that would stop. The aerial attacks would stop immediately, and then they would withdraw from Gaza. But because they haven't, the Israelis are going to continue fighting until they're all dead, or they have liquidated the last of the Palestinians that are in their range. You know, imagine a handful of Aussies did something terrible on the world stage, and then whoever they did it to decided to persecute you and I who had nothing to do with it. We'd be going. Yeah, that, that's true. I agree with you there. It's it's, it's one of those it's things. It's too it's bad, a, Israel. You have to suck it up. You have decided. What, they've got to suck it up? Yes, they've got to suck they, it you, up. You, like, the oh. response that you have chosen is not acceptable. You have to okay, find. What sort of response should they do? The, uh, you have to suck it up. You can't just bomb the Gaza. You have to find a way of working towards mutual cooperation. You can't just obliterate. Yeah, but Hamas has already said they will not cooperate with Israel. Well, that's here's the so, problem. When you've, when you've just artificially plopped a group into an area and said to I the agree, existing people, too a, bad. A, a so, terrible mistake was made in 1947. And so a that's terrible, the terrible, terrible mistake was made. Yeah, and that's the so as a consequence, they have to work as hopeless as that might be, but they just can't obliterate tens of thousands of innocent people. Mm. It's shocking that this has happened, that the world is just watching on and countries like the USA uh, through the UN refuse uh, UN resolutions calling for ceasefires. For ceasefires, I know. And, and countries like the US supply weapons to them, allowing it to happen. Mm. Uh, it just goes shows how little faith we can have in the future <laughs> when, when a country can just decide to just obliterate a group of people uh, in response to that. It, what hope have we got? 
It's anything. One possible. of those things. Had they have not, had Hamas not actually pulled the trigger on that September on that uh, October seventh attack, mm. none of this would have happened. Well, what none was happening already happened. though? What was happening already? Okay, they is, had they had them terrible. locked off. They, they had them locked out and that sort of stuff. They weren't allowing them to cross the border to get a work or anything else. They had them locked out in Israel. So the sort of Which, conditions, what this has done is highlighted well, that, yeah, what's been the, going on in the Gaza and in the and, West Bank and, and highlighting actually, what an apartheid state Yeah, and you've actually got a group of people that feel like they've got no choice but to take up arms. Yeah. So Israel is potentially also responsible for Hamas taking up arms. Mm. But... Had they have actually not just walked away, had they have actually stayed on the negotiating table with Israel and all that sort of stuff, had they have taken the path that Egypt did and that sort of stuff after the Yom Kippur War, where they actually acknowledged Israel had a right to exist and all that sort of thing, they could have set up some sort of diplomatic relations. Mm. Then they could have worked towards a two-state solution. But Hamas said, no, fuck you, you got to get out, which I think is... Um, Terribly childish in the – it's also terribly childish, but it's also playing with fire because Israel does not have a good record for walking away from a battle. Mm. I mean, they needed to do the hard work of encouraging more moderate Palestinian groups yeah, so that, absolutely. They, so rather, that they would rather, have somebody they could deal with. Yeah, exactly. Rather than, rather than Netanyahu doing what he did, which was to encourage Hamas to – knock off the Palestinian Authority, mm. well, you know, all your, your chickens have come home to roost now, buddy. Mm. So anyway, they've completely obliterated they completely the, the sympathy that the world has for for Jews. And, mm. and um, that is why there is so much anti-Semitism being spilled around the place. Mm. It's, not just, it's not just from Arab Australians or anything else. It is being spread throughout the world and it is coming up because Israel is behaving in such a terrible fashion. But is there is there a lot of anti-Semitism or is it just anti-Zionism? Uh, it's probably more anti-Zionism yeah. than anti-Semitism. Yeah. But anyway, it is, it's, it's got some expression as anti-Semitism, mm. but it is basically anti-Zionism that is being, that mm. is being pillied about. Mm. Mm. Scott, we've come up to 8.34 and this podcast these days only lasts an hour, so... Dear That's listener. because Landon Hardbottom hasn't been in contact with us That's for a right. long time, has it? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so now, dear listener, this podcast is going to change to Monday nights and a slightly later time of 8 p.m. So, for personal reasons, um, <laughs> <laughs> they did want to start at 8 30, listeners, but I actually put my foot down because that's my bedtime. Yeah. So, <laughs> so it will coincide with uh, mine. Uh, my wife and I, our job of um, looking after some grandchildren on Monday nights and it will free up my Tuesday night to, um, well, dear listener, some of you may know that I'm a keen squash player and I'm trying to improve my squash and maybe enter some Masters events. And in order to prepare for that, I really need to play some comp nights, which are on a Tuesday night. And so, um, so yeah, there's no other special reason other than it suits me, so I can play squash on Tuesday nights occasionally. But um, so yeah, it's it going to be suits me well too because I can go to schooner runs on Tuesday nights. There we go. So in future, it's going to be on a Monday night, 
um, as the regular night uh, for the foreseeable future starting next week. So we'll talk to you then Monday night at the new time of 8 o'clock. Bye for now. And it's good night from him. George, where it is so clear, it is a lynching at the highest level. Nobody can deny it. And I thank God that we have people in the streets. Can you imagine this kind of lynching taking place and people are indifferent? People don't care? People Mm. are callous? You have just a few people out there with signs? I recall the moments in which during the Reagan years, there was a few of us out there. In the 60s, you had masses out there. Now you've got a younger Mm. generation of all of these different colors and genders and sexual orientations saying, we won't take it any longer. But you know what's sad about it though, brother? At the deepest level? It looks as if the system cannot reform itself. We've tried black faces in high places. Too often our black politicians, professional class, middle class, become too accommodated to the capitalist economy, too accommodated to the militarized nation state, too accommodated to the market-driven culture tied with celebrity status, power, fame, all of that superficial stuff.